Welcome, everybody, to the ongoing nightclub interview series, where my special guest today truly is the renowned and esteemed teacher, Sharon Salzberg. As many of you know, Sharon is an absolute treasure in the world of meditation and one of the original teachers at the heart of the mindfulness revolution in the West. As you'll see, she combines decades of study, practice, and teaching with a most grounded and practical presentation of meditation in our world today. Our conversation was really all about, or mostly about, the recent political upheaval and how we can relate to it. This particular discussion doesn't hold anything back. It gets to the heart of so much of what's actually happening these days. Meditation and spirituality have so much to offer right now. And Sharon, as you'll see, is the perfect person to deliver these insights. Welcome, everybody. Andrew Holacek here, and I am absolutely thrilled to be able to spend the next few minutes with really one of the great leaders of the meditation movement in the Western world, uh, Sharon Salisbury. It's a real honor and delight to be able to spend some time with her. And so as usual, I will do a very brief, somewhat formal introduction, and then we're just gonna jump right in into a bunch of really hot current topics. So Sharon Salzberg is a meditation pioneer and industry leader a world-renowned teacher, and New York Times best-selling author. As one of the first to bring meditation and mindfulness into mainstream American culture over 45 years ago, her relatable demystifying approach has inspired generations of meditation teachers and wellness influencers. Sharon is co-founder of the Inside Meditation Society in Barre. Is it Barre or Barre? I can never. It, it's Barry. Just Barry. Like the guy named Barry. After all these years, I would know that. <laughs> Barry, Massachusetts. And the author of 11 books, including the New York Times bestseller, Real Happiness, now in its second edition. Her seminal work, Loving Kindness, and her newest book, Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves in the World, released in September of 2020 from Flatiron Books. Sharon's secular modern approach to Buddhist teachings is sought after at schools, conferences, and retreat centers worldwide. And her podcast, The Meta Hour, has amassed over 3 million downloads. So Sharon, really thank you so deeply for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to chat with us. We're thrilled to have you. Well, it's, it's a great delight to talk to you after all this time of like reading about you. <laughs> yeah, same with me. We, we, we've, we've crossed in cyberspace and we've shared platforms and yeah. community uh, events together, but it's the first time we really had a chance to connect. And I, I'm really honored and thrilled to be able to do this with you. So I have to share with you, I, I had some prepared ideas, which maybe if we have time, we can come back to. But um, in the light of everything that's happened over the last couple of weeks, and also in connection to your marvelous book, which I'm which I'm reading and just absolutely loving, uh, the book on real change. To me, it, it you know it seems almost disingenuous not to address this kind of colossal elephant in the room, right? Uh, political, social discord, and the like. And so, one of the ways I want to talk to you about this, Sharon, is in fact there's there's so much um, kind of subliminal traffic in the in the meditation world not so much about being politically correct but 
um, I playfully refer to it as being spiritually correct. <laughs> that, that anger doesn't really have a rightful place on the spiritual path, that wrath is almost anti-spiritual. And so um, in your experience, how are you dealing? How are you relating to what has transpired in the last couple of weeks? And how can we um, aid our listeners? Because I'm getting so many questions, I'm sure, as you are in terms of how do we relate to this um, three-ring circus that's going on right now. So um, let's start with that and see where that takes us. Sure. Um, well, there's so many levels to that. You know, I think about um, a distinction we sometimes try to make in the meditative world between feeling something and being consumed by it, especially to the degree that it's guiding your actions. You know, that's, that's what's motivating the thing you say, the thing you don't say, you hold back from, or the thing you do or you refrain from doing. And, and they're very different. And so uh, I think sometimes people morph them together in the spiritual world, for example, and think, well, I'm bad because I feel this. I shouldn't feel anger. I shouldn't have this come up. Um, this, is, this is the wrong thing. Or in my case, I just celebrated a an outrageous anniversary. I've been meditating for 50 years now. Oh, congratulations. I thank you. I started, it's like unbelievable, really. I started uh, January 7th, 1971. And, oh, wow. Um, you know, it's spooky. It's like I don't think of myself that way, like that old, or, you know, <laughs> that practiced or anything. But anyway, um, you know, it would be easy for me to say, you've been meditating for 50 years. What, what's that still doing here? Right. Um, you know, and so I think it's it's really crucial that we allow every feeling the dignity of its own existence. We feel what we feel. The thing about getting lost in anger, getting consumed by anger, is that it's tricky. You know, there's a lot of uh, energy there that's positive, and there's often a lot of courage there. Like we know just from like a meeting or. Uh, some get-together of people. Sometimes it's the angriest person in the room that's the most honest. Like, look at that. And everyone else is studiously looking the other way. Like, I don't want to look at that. Right. Let's not bring that up, you know. So, um, But the downside of it is that, uh, like in the Buddhist psychology, they say anger is like a forest fire, which can burn up its own support. Mm. You know, it can damage us so much if we get consumed by it. And like a forest fire, it might leave us very far from where we want to be. It's like as much as there's that cutting through energy in the anger, there's also a kind of delusion sometimes. It's like yeah. if you think of the last time you were really, really angry at yourself, however long ago that was, that's not a time where we're likely to think, I did five great things that same morning. I said that stupid thing in the meeting. You know, those five great things are gone. And so we may not see options. We may not see resolutions. We may not see a path of action, actually, in, in the midst of that kind of anger. So the very delicate task is to kind of retrieve the energy of it and that courage yeah. without getting sucked into it. Now, this is not easy. But, um, you know, I think it takes a very powerful exploration and a very personal exploration. Like, what do you think the opposite is? 
You know, is it being complacent? Is it letting things go? Is it, what do you think of love or compassion? Do you think they're weak and sort of sniveling and, you know, obsequious? Or do you think they are powerful? Um, and what's your experience of them, actually, let alone what you think? And so um, if we are willing to do that kind of exploration, I think we may see lots of sources of strength. And, and that, you know, to sort of go back more directly to your question, is like mm -hmm. a lot of what I have been thinking about this last uh, week and a half, for example. Um, I wrote the book Real Change before even the pandemic, and I turned it in. Um, and then once the pandemic hit, the publisher decided to postpone publication. So instead of coming out in June, it was coming out in September. And uh, in that interim period, a friend of mine was reading it to excerpt it, and he said, you know, he liked the book, but he would read the examples and he'd think, that's what made you anxious? Wait till you see what's coming. Wow. And so I went back to the publisher and I said, is it okay if I write a new preface and just sort of try to ground the book in what's happening? And they said, okay. So the, the most prevalent question I asked myself in that period to be able to write the preface was, what's still true? Yeah you know, in the midst of chaos and disruption yep. and anxiety and grief and, you know, so much loss. Like, what's still true? What's intact? What can I count on? What can I rely on? And um, in the uh, Sanskrit language, the word dharma, which is so often translated as the truth or the nature of things, or sometimes the Buddhist teaching actually means that which supports us. That's what holds, yeah. You know, and, and so... I really tried to look deeply at that for myself. Like, what's holding me together, you know? And, like, what's still true? What's intact? And I thought of um, the saying of the Buddhas, later echoed by Martin Luther King Jr., um, uh, hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred will only cease by love. This is an eternal law. Which I always thought was kind of quirky. Like, this right. is, you know, the Buddha is like Mr. Impermanence and <laughs> saying this is an eternal law. But I really do believe that because I don't think of love as weak or, you know, giving in or I think of it as extremely radical and powerful and, and motivating. And so anyway, you know, so like I, I looked at not the violent photos or videos, but I looked at some of the earlier photos um, of people screaming in the in the Capitol, you know, this is my house. It's our house. You can't. Uh, you can't take it away. And I, I had asked myself, still true? <laughs> hatred will never cease by hatred. Like, still believe that, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I do. Um, I have also thought of, uh, I'm not going to do justice to this, but James Baldwin has a quotation, uh, something like, if you can look underneath the anger, you find the pain. Yes, exactly. Yep. And it, they just looked like really like lost people. And I felt, the compassion. On the other hand, you know, I think um, one of the really uh, difficult things for me in these last four years, there have been a couple that sort of relate very much to my own, you know, personal life, especially my earlier life as a child, where um, there were just a lot of things kept from me as people tried to 
be kind and, you know, but nonetheless, it didn't really work that way. Uh, you know, and so first of all, deceit yeah. uh, is very, very hard for me. And actions not bearing consequences is very hard for me. Yeah. And I think they've been two hallmarks of, of the last four years. And so when I say, you know, hatred does not cease by hatred, I don't mean that people should not have consequences of their actions. And these actions are very severe and frightening. And uh, I think that there have to be consequences. For sure, for sure. And, you know, as, as you well know, in the, in the Tibetan kind of Vajrayana language, anger is part of the Vajra family, right? Which is kind of the, the alchemical aspect or tantric component of that is this, you know, the clarity, the incisiveness, mm -hmm. the, the, um, the sharpness of actually seeing things, you know, Manjushri's blade, it mm -hmm. can then be used. And, and there's also, you know, in the, the four karmas, the four kind of enlightened activities that somewhat um, ironically do not create karma, um, pacifying, enriching, magnetizing, and then when nothing else works, the very viable, tough love, wrath of destruction, that, that it has its place. And, and so I'm, I'm not necessarily starting our conversation with espousing these types of approaches, but um, I think they're incredibly helpful to bring out into the open right off the bat, because Sharon, when I look into my own experience and, and feel into my own anger, I, I feel it to be I find it to be one of the most reifying and solidifying of all emotions. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the that's the massive near enemy that, you know, anger and fear, which are kissing cousins, unfortunately, there's nothing that makes me feel more solid and real. And so, like you, when I see these people screaming and beating, you know, these videos that are just so hard to watch, yeah, I, I find it's also when I work in Death and Dying that when things are falling apart for all these people that, that don't have jobs that are you know, struggling anger is one of the most reconstituting of all emotions it can mm -hmm, make you feel mm -hmm. more real than almost anything else when everything is falling apart and so i think that understanding psycho-spiritual understanding of it is really important because otherwise we do meet anger with anger instead of with compassion and mm -hmm. i couldn't agree more with you that really love is the most powerful force in the universe i mean parenthetically as you know we use it on the path for harnessed in, um, under the rubric of devotion for the purposes of awakening altogether. So mm -hmm. there's definitely a place for tough love. There's definitely a place for anger in what's happening now. But here's, here's a question that I really want to throw your way in terms of what you just said. How do we help others? And again, because we have to be a little bit careful um, in terms of what we may not be saying. But when I look at what's happening um, we're living in a world of fake news. We're living in an alternate reality. I, I listened to some of these interviews with the QAnon folks, and it's really chilling what mm -hmm. they believe wholeheartedly. How can we, or in fact, can we, help people reconnect to reality? Yeah, that's, <laughs> as we say, that's a tough question. I, I, uh, I actually don't know about the how. I think about that a lot. And, um, you know, it's hard, like going back to James Baldwin's quote, it's hard to look at one's pain, you know, and any meditator knows that, that, uh, oh, look at that. Now I've done 50,000 things to avoid this feeling. Look at that. Here it is, you know. Um, and it's difficult. We do it 
in the context of community, hopefully, or with uh, a very trusting relationship with a guide, with a teacher, um, or at least a sense of inspiration, you know, so that we don't feel so alone in, in the face of, of the suffering that we uncover. And it's not just suffering. We uncover tremendous joy, too, and uh, rejoicing and really, really beautiful things as well. So, um, you know, how to, how to provide some of that sense of context. It's, it's hard for me to say. All, all I feel assured of is that my motivation has to be right. And um, like when I sit with anger, um, which is one of the teachings, you know, like uh, <clears throat> in, in the world of mindfulness to be able to be with these different feelings in a different way. And um, the first thing is to kind of pivot because when we have a very strong emotion going, we tend to be, as you know, we tend to be fascinated or fixated on the object, on the condition, mm. on the circumstance. Mm. We so rarely kind of turn our awareness around. Like, what does anger feel like? Mm. You know, what is what does desire feel like? You know, so sticking with the anger for a moment, like, what does it feel like in my body? And it's like we take an interest in the feeling itself. And, and then we can watch the anger movie and we see that, because these feelings are so complex, we see the different strands of things that are going along with the anger, you know, moments of fear, moments of sadness, moments of grief. And almost always when I've been able to do that, I come to a sense of helplessness, yeah. which is like at the core. And then the anger is, is what I am used to in order to not feel helpless, which is such a terrible feeling. And if I can get there, then I just take some action. It's like that's my commitment. You know, it may be very small, but it's doing something. And, um, you know, like some of those people that I've read about who were uh, in the Capitol um, rioting, and, uh, you know, they, they were uh, bankers, you know, <laughs> music teachers. It was like... Uh, it wasn't the uh, like totally downtrodden of of society, but I would bet anything there's a kind of psychological helplessness that was was cooking there. You know, like feeling so unworthy in a way, yeah, yeah. or being told they were so unworthy for whatever reason. Yeah, I, I think those those types of extremists really come from extreme states of mind. Um, and, and I think I couldn't agree more with you, Sharon. I'm reminded of uh, one of the, the Lojong or mind training slogan, slogans when they talk about working with these really high voltage energies is, is what I do is, uh, like you said, is I will um, drop the object that triggers the energy and take ownership of the mm -hmm. energy itself. Um, that kind of just simply by staying with it, I, I can start to transform it. I'm staying in, in the very crucible of my body. And so I'd like to uh, talk to you a little bit more about the role of, of connectivity that way, that, that maybe we can help others reconnect to reality by ourselves establishing a deeper connection to our own realities, that, that maybe from that stands um, the skillful means for relating to others become apparent but again 
but, but again, maybe not. And so what do you see, this may seem um, somewhat a circuitous way to get to this topic, what is the role of the body in this? In other words, like I was alluding to earlier, staying embodied, having the courage to be in, in the blast furnace of these conflicting emotions ourselves, mm-hmm. making, you know, loving kindness, which you teach so much about. Mm-hmm. I think it takes tremendous maitri, metta, to actually do even that. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit about using the body as a crucible for transformation and, and the wisdom of waking down into the body to stay with these very difficult emotions, acting, relating um, to them instead of from them? You know, not everybody, you know, uh, so readily feels emotions within their body. I think it's, it's almost like a training for many, and that's fine. Um, we do tend to be kind of disembodied, like that quotation from James Joyce that is so um, oh, right. Mr. often Duffy. used. Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. Yeah. And I've taught walking meditation, for example, to more than one person who could not feel their feet against the ground so they looked down. Oh, wow. You know, and it's it's just habit. It's the way we're conditioned very often. But over time, I think we can learn to feel um, these different emotions within the body. And it's just useful because uh, there's less judgment. There's less um, elaboration. It's just more of a direct experience. It's like, oh, this is what it feels like. And uh, we can actually use those different feelings as a feedback system in life. Like I have a friend who describes herself as the kind of person who could never say no. And so at one point in her meditation, she brought up those kinds of scenarios in her mind where she'd be asked to do something and she really didn't have the time, but she couldn't bring herself to say yes. And she felt what was happening in her body. And she recognized there's a certain feeling that actually came in that moment. It was almost a kind of wave of panic in her stomach and like, they won't like me anymore, you know. Uh, But it was much more um, emphatic in her body than it was in her thoughts. And, And she used that so that the next time, say, she was at work and somebody asked her that very kind of question, uh, she'd feel that sensation and she'd say, I have to get back to you later about that. It's like she couldn't bring herself to actually say no, but she could buy time and then she could say no. You know, so, uh, you know, and that's different than sort of having an identification with the feeling that I'm such an angry person. Why am I so angry? I shouldn't be angry after all these years of meditating. I've been in therapy for so long, for God's sake. You know, you wouldn't think I'd be still so angry. No one else is angry. I'm the only person, you know, it's just like on and on. But if we're just feeling it, in the body, it's much more direct. I've also read, I read some, somewhat mixed things, but I like the first thing I read, which was um, that research was beginning to show that interoception, that um, mm-hmm. awareness of sensation within your body, not just like holding a hot cup of tea or something that's more external, but feeling within your body is a precursor to empathy, uh, which makes sense to me because there is that resonance within when we look at somebody and we feel empathy, it's not necessarily a cognitive empathy. Like, oh, I understand. That must be really hard, you know? Right. It's that vibratory resonance that is being sensitive to feeling in your body. Yeah, really connecting, being honest with, <clears throat> with the truth of your own feelings. Um, and so, you know, very much along these lines is 
this notion that we you were alluding to earlier, Sharon, that you know the importance of feeling it but not feeding it, mm-hmm. um, relating relating to the energy without either indulging in it or repressing it, and, mm-hmm. and that's not such an easy thing to do, right? Because I mean, our, our default mechanisms are one of the either or one or either one of those to either run with it and indulge it or to repress it in which case of course then it becomes symptomatic and lashes out so in in your own experience um, when you're working in your own practice what else can you share with us along those lines to deal with not just anger but you know the the the, the, the absolute cascade of emotions that's taking place now and also even as we were talking before we came on, on air, so to speak, um, for me, tempering, if that's even an appropriate thing to do, the excitement that I feel with the new administration coming mm-hmm. in. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's not always kind of negative situations that I think we need to relate to more skillfully, but almost dealing with, you know, the parents of the eight worldly concerns altogether, you know, skillful relationship to both hope and fear mm-hmm. and, and the progeny of both of those. Well, in terms of fear, you know, I go back to um, saying it's like a training. And I, I know some people don't like the word training. But, you know, it's a cultivation. And um, and that's a very hopeful thing in my mind, you know, that there's a path and that, and that we can practice and we can learn skills that maybe we didn't grow up learning and in terms of emotions or feelings and, and in terms of everything. And um, I, I've often said that my favorite – definition of mindfulness came from an article I read in the New York Times many years ago about one of the early pilot programs bringing mindfulness into the classroom. So this was a fourth grade classroom in Oakland, California. And the journalist asked one of the kids, so he's in fourth grade, so let's say he's nine or ten years old, they said, what is mindfulness? What is mindfulness? And and the, the young boy responded, mindfulness means not hitting someone in the mouth. That's what mindfulness means. And I thought, that is a great definition wow, of mindfulness, a, you know. That's three levels. Isn't that? Because great. it's exactly what you were describing. It was, first of all, knowing you're feeling angry when you're starting to feel angry, not after you've sent the email, you know, not after you've responded or lashed out. And it also implies exactly really what you were describing, a balanced relationship to the anger, because if we get overwhelmed by it and identified with it and, and uh, sort of defined by it, we'll probably hit a lot of people in the mouth because mm-hmm. life can be really difficult. But if we hate it and we fear it and we're ashamed of it and, and we try to repress it, we get tighter and tighter and tighter and then we'll explode. Yeah. And so it just doesn't work. We talk about mindfulness as a place in the middle where we can connect fully mm-hmm. without either getting overwhelmed nor pushing away and that takes time you know but and some things of course are easier than others uh no doubt but um we actually can cultivate that with a lot of kindness toward ourselves don't blame yourself for anything that you're feeling um and uh just practice it actually makes a difference now hope is a tricky thing you know because um of course that word also can be used differently sometimes when we say hope i think we really do mean attachment like Mm -hmm. it's going to have to work out in exactly this way and nothing else will do Mm -hmm. uh which is a trap of course of of expectation and then frustration usually um but i think 
as distorted and weird a relationship as many of us have to pain, painful mm -hmm. sensation in the body, painful emotion, painful situation, we also can have a really kind of weird and distorted relationship to pleasure yeah. or delight or wonder or joy or whatever. Um, you know, sometimes we're so distracted we don't even take it in. Sometimes we have these impossible standards. You know, like I, I often tell the story about a friend of mine in Washington, D.C. many years ago taking me to this area, uh, the basin, where they have many, many cherry trees that are planted. And when they all bloom, that's cherry blossom season. So she was really determined to get me there, and, and we got there. And I just thought it was so beautiful, like all these delicate pink blossoms and so many of them. And, and then my friend said, oh, no, it's past the peak. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, I'm having a bad experience. Right. This isn't good enough. And I also think in a time like this, where there's so much suffering, maybe our own, maybe others, you know, it it feels wrong to let in the joy. And uh, people often say to me they feel guilty, you know, uh, about that. And yet I think we have to look at what resilience really means and how we restore ourselves and what are the consequences of just getting depleted and exhausted. And, and the joy will counter that. You know, it'll give us some energy and inspiration. And uh, a lot of things I think we we cast in the light of selfish, which are really not. They're, they're really about restoring and having resilience. Yeah, I mean, really beautiful, beautifully said. One of the reasons I'm harping on this a little bit is because, you know, in the, in the kind of context of your book on real change, mm -hmm. Sharon, when I, when I look into my own experience and I look at what has really catalyzed change in me, it is, in fact, feeling. Um, it's, it's not so much a cognitive or cerebral thing. It's not some philosophical ideology. And even if it was triggered by that, that in and of itself won't do it. I, I change when I feel things. And so mm -hmm. to me, what we're talking about here is, is completely resonant with your beautiful book, uh, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves in the World, Real Change. And so to me, real change means real feeling. And I guess the reality of, of the feeling is what I'm after. You know, what is it that that constitutes an authentic connection to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you know, we, we express towards ourselves what we express to others. And, and so obviously when we're doing, or maybe not so obviously, when we're doing this work um, by connecting deeply to ourselves in this way, we connect to everybody else you know, because mm -hmm. everybody has this kind of internal mm -hmm. landscape. So um, that to me, it's like, and if there are any final comments along this, you know, what else of course, you have a beautiful entire book on this. What else is integral to um, true, real change in, in, outside of working with feelings in this authentic way? Well, you know, again, I wrote, I wrote the book before the pandemic. So then, because my great fear was like, I wrote a completely irrelevant book. Look at that. Because you know, like, <laughs> things were so extreme. And, uh, and yet, you know, when I look back at it... Um, there, there are a lot. There's a lot of emphasis on agency, you know, mm. countering that sense of helplessness, and how important I really think it is to do what even seems like a small thing that's right in front of you, instead of thinking it could never be enough, or you know, it's so meager, and and just do it. Um, 
and it has a chapter on moving from anger to courage. It has a chapter on moving from grief to resilience and another one on taking in the joy and then one on equanimity. And, and it's the same things. Maybe it's eternal. You know, we're always looking at those qualities because they do sustain us and they transform the nature of our action. And um, in a very immediate sense, you know, uh, I think we we can connect to our feelings when we can also distinguish um, the feeling from what we might call the add-on. You know, I, uh, I'm the only one who ever feels this, or this is the only thing I ever feel. This is the real me. Yeah. What's it going to be like tomorrow? It will be even worse. Or, you know, I spent all that money in therapy. Why is that still here? You know, there are lots of things we might just dump on top of, of the feeling. And if we can distinguish those and relinquish those, then we can come back to what we're feeling. And, and that's very healthy, whether it's a painful feeling or a pleasant feeling. Um, so that's part of it. And then in response to something you said that really struck me, I always thought it was one of the weirdest things about meditation in that it looks like it could be the most solitary activity imaginable. Like maybe you sit all alone. Maybe your eyes are closed, but somehow in the process, in the very process, I think we do find a profound connection with others. Yeah. And it, it really brings us to this world of, of interconnection, which is the truth of things. And it's not sentimental or saccharine because it is the truth of things. And it has that kind of power of, of uh, reality, as Bob Thurman would say, you know, it's, it's realistic. And, and so when when you look again, when you take the, you know, that we we're, I'm going to transition a little bit with your permission from from um, interiority to, mm-hmm. you know, the fifty thousand foot view. When when you take the fifty thousand foot view or look at your crystal ball, what do you see as the opportunities and what's actually taking place? I, I, it's so interesting to me. I, I was listening to Bruce Lipton, and mm-hmm. he said something really quite beautiful um, recently about. And it's so true, isn't it? How crisis ignites evolution. Mm-hmm. That until um, really things break down, we can't break through. And so on one level, boy, are we having a breakdown. Mm-hmm. And yet my dear friend Roger Walsh shared mm-hmm. with me a study that I found very interesting that uh, when things fall apart, the default is actually regressive, not progressive. The default mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. to get Humpty Dumpty back together again. And, and God forbid that we do that because, you mm-hmm. know, that ain't working. So mm-hmm. from your perspective, um, authentic opportunities, what, what do you see as, as, as teachable moments here, things we can individually and collectively derive to uh, really use this as this crisis, in fact, as an uh, ignition point for evolution? Yeah, I mean, I think we can we can look back. It's almost like one crisis supplants the one before, you know. But yeah, yeah. If, if we go back to the beginning of the pandemic, um, some of the things I saw, uh, say, with my friends living in New York City is that they reached out to one another, you know. And uh, people would say to me, I've lived in this apartment for 12 years. I never even knew my neighbor's names. Mm-hmm. And now we all have one another's names and phone numbers, and we keep in touch. Mm. We try to help one another. And uh, the day I decided to leave New York City to come up to Barry, Mass., which is where I am now, um, I was teaching, and um, 
the place that I was teaching at, the, the way they structure things is that the speaker sits in the audience until they're formally introduced, and then you go up on the stage and you teach. So I was still in the audience, and the woman next to me was like extremely anxious. So this was March 9th, and nothing was shut down yet, and there was hand sanitizer anywhere, and we were, you know, told not to shake hands, but nobody mentioned the word aerosol. Nobody knew, you know. Yeah. And and uh, there was such tremendous anxiety growing, and um, and she was sitting next to me, and she told me how anxious she was. So I said, "Well, you know, like you could maybe think about doing these kinds of breathing exercises, which will calm down your nervous system." And she wasn't interested. So I said, well, you know, there's loving-kindness meditation, and and it will really uh, give you a very different feeling. <coughs> and she wasn't interested in that. Yeah. So then I looked at her and I said, is there anyone you can help? And she lit up. She got really radiant. She said, well, you know, I have this elderly neighbor, and I can slip a note under her door, see if I can go grocery shopping for her. And I thought, look at that. Yeah. You know, so I think those kind of lessons – about how connected we all are or, you know, what do you think about the clerk in the supermarket? You know, um, if you take a moment and think, how do I get to eat in a situation like this since I'm not growing my own food? You know, that our lives are interdependent. They're intertwined. And in some way, the pandemic revealed kind of the terrible face of that. And the beautiful face of that is compassion that, uh, our lives really are connected. Like I, I talked to somebody who's a, a physician heading a large medical group in a hospital, and he said, you know who I'm really getting to appreciate a lot is the cleaning staff. And I thought, well, yeah, you know, think of that. You know, so those kind of opportunities, those lessons, I think have, have really abounded. For a lot of people, you know, back to the pandemic again, there's been like I used to live on an airplane, you know. It's like I'm not traveling at all, and, right. and you know, there's time, there's space. It's kind of weird, and uh, you know, it it may be that people have learned some things about themselves that were very important to learn, and then um, you know, with uh, the marches and the uprising uh, for Black Lives Matter, and I think. Uh, there was a, a sense for many people of a kind of moral reckoning that was that was very important and hard to bear. And realizing how, and that, that's connected to the pandemic too and kind of the um, inequalities that got revealed. And so it's a time of revelation in a lot of ways, you know, and what we do with those things uh, is really going to make a difference. And then certainly now, um, you know, the, there is such a heightened sense of, for me, you know, of like, this is what was cooking, you know? This is what was seething. Uh, this much hatred. And, and I, mean, I had it, I was Zooming with a friend of mine who's an observant Jew who's 82 years old. And um, I told her what was on those sweatshirts, you know? Uh, you know, camp. Auschwitz and yeah, uh, six million were not enough. And, yeah, right. and I looked at her face and there was so much sorrow. And um, I mean, you know what it's like when you're coming toward the end of your life 
from the people that you know you work with and and you think this is the world that I'm leaving behind you know mm-hmm. um, there was so much sorrow and I thought and especially you know weirdly in a time when a lot of us are thinking in a brand new way about inherited trauma or yeah epigenetics yeah exactly yeah you know and I think wow you know like uh, I mean I certainly inherited that trauma and uh, and here it is and yet there's a part of me that thinks it's so much better that it's on the surface that it's revealed yeah and yeah. not yeah, so you know, it, it, it's a timeful, painful revelation, and then you know, or, or you could say a diagnosis, and then I want to return to this, to this individual and collective um, prescription. You know, we have a diagnosis. All kinds of things have been um, brought to the surface. Painful revelations of the level of discord, um, which I think is really helpful because if you don't, if you don't have these things on the table or on stage, they, you know, on stage is always run by backstage, and so we're having these these ingredients kind of festering below the surface. But the question that I get very often asked these days, and I loved what you refer, uh, referenced here in your book with bell hooks, who I just adore, mm-hmm. where, you know, she doesn't, she no longer uses the word social action. She mm-hmm. talks about radical thinking and radical practice. I thought that was spot on, but let's talk a little bit more uh, because I get this question so often now, what can I do? Um, you know, outside of what you're just talking about, um, in relation to social, I shouldn't even say that now. So I was going to default it into social action. <laughs> <laughs> what what can we do on an individual level? Um, I'm curious how you respond to those queries when they come your direction. Specific specific, you know, the kind of recommendations for because some people don't feel that delivering food for the person next door or picking up the paper or whatever is enough. Um, and I'm wondering how you respond, uh, you know, to those um, questions when they come mm-hmm. your way. Well, first I should say that uh, Belle went on to say, um, when we are having this conversation, and, and she said she didn't like the term social action because she felt it might, in some people's minds, only mean marching or protesting. Yeah. And she looked at me and she said, what about art? Yeah. You know, and so I was trying. I tried really hard in in the context of that book to include artists and writers and people, you know, like who break down our notion of of what's reality and what's expected, and and bring us to a whole other place. And that's important. It's very important for social change. Um, I mean, I think it 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 too happens on a lot of different levels. I think we have to do that small act that seems so negligible because then. Really, nothing is going to happen if we don't do that, and and it's not negligible. You know, like we are planting a seed, even when we don't get an immediate result. Uh, maybe somebody feels cared for. Maybe somebody feels listened to. Uh, maybe we reach a place within us that is more whole or more intact in that kind of generosity. It's like we have to do that, and and in many ways, that's what keeps us real. You know, some of the rest can be like a story we tell ourselves about structural change or, you know, whatever. Um, but that's, what's real is that person, uh, who has some need. And so that's a part of it. But then I I do think that there's, there's a kind of education we could all do with that has to do with structural change. And, um, I've said for a long time that, you know, I have so many students um, who 
are practicing meditation, let's, let's say even mindfulness meditation, not with a special emphasis on compassion even, but uh, they find the development of compassion within them grows stronger and stronger. And I have so many students who say to me, you know, I was, uh, was before the pandemic, uh, you know, I was taking a walk and somebody came up to me and asked me for a dollar and I gave them a dollar because that's my general habit. But this was the first time I ever looked that person in the eye and realized that was a human being. Yeah. And that I think is really a, a potential benefit of the meditation practice. But that person doesn't necessarily then go on to say, I wonder what the housing policy is in my city. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. You know, and so I think that kind of remembering and training and education, like, oh, yeah, what is the system behind this? Let's look deeper. Let's look for causes and conditions because uh, the action we take that might be seemingly small is very important, but uh, we can also do that or whatever we're doing with a vision of the whole and understand causes and conditions. And uh, it's just a different perspective that I think is very important. Yeah, really, it really lends credibility to that. You know, sometimes the bumper stickers really do convey truths, right? Like, mm-hmm. think uh, global, act local. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of um, traction to that one there. And it's interesting, you know, what you said about giving the dollar, how um, <clears throat> it's our vulnerability, it's, it's our fear, our inability to contain the pain of others that really, when when the panhandlers and whatnot come at us at, at stoplights, it's really hard to look at them because you're, you're yeah. looking at such pain that you can't deal with it. And so you shine and in, 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 um, put the sunglasses on or, or whatever, run the other way. And so this is where I think, of course, you know, these, like we're starting to talk about earlier, the great power of these meditations, you know, like you write about, you know, having a heart as wide as the world, mm-hmm. where when you become so familiar with your own internal landscape, feeling you know, my tree for oneself develops karuna, compassion, and empathy for others. Um, and so I, I emphasize this because the, the spiritual technology, um, so to speak, that we have at our disposal, um, contrary to just navel-gazing and elitist, indulgent types of activities, they're thermonuclear-powered practices. If they're mm-hmm. done properly, they really tap us into natural resources that connect us to the wealth within our own being. And, and then I think, honestly, Sharon, for me, so many of the questions that I'm asking you, I find the answers when I tap into my own soul mind, to my own mm-hmm. body mind matrix. That, you know, when I ask you, what can I do? Well, when I ask that question of myself, it's like, okay, let's go within. My dear friend David Rome wrote a beautiful book called, you know, Your Body Knows the Answer. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you have the courage to touch into that, and the, the serendipitous thought, like, well, geez, where did that thought come from? Or that feeling or that dream or something that's coming from your body, paren, unconscious mind, that really, in a non-theistic way, we have those answers. We just have to be open um, and courageous enough to um, access them and then listen to them, don't you think? Mm-hmm. I do think that. And uh, it's very hard to do. And it's especially hard to do. I mean, this is such a weird time just making new friends or something, you know, but it's hard to do without some kind of support system. Yeah. Um, and we had, we just have to find that. 
both, both within ourselves and, and also within community. Exactly. I, I do want to come back. I have one question here that I do want to ask you because I, I wrestle with this myself. I, I have um, immediate family members who I love deeply as family members, but uh, <laughs> and hopefully they're not listening. Um, they generally don't listen to my stuff. <laughs> but they're, but they're right. They're hardcore conspiracy theorists. I don't know if the QAnon level, um, I'm yeah. not, you know, I, yeah. I, I fear treading even into those waters. But in, in your own experience, I wonder if you've actually had the opportunity slash challenge of trying to relate to or communicate with people um, that have views that are so antithetical to yours, that, that are, you know, the conspiracy theories, people that have really drunk the fake news Kool-Aid that are really so disconnected from reality. I am I'm deeply interested um, if you've had that opportunity challenge and how how can you recommend that, that we um, communicate, relate to them, if in fact it's even possible? Well, whether it's possible or not is, is in question, but um, depends on the degree of the fixation, I'm sure. But um, I think of I think of this too in, in many in many levels. Like um, I have a fascination with conspiracy theorists, and uh, like, what is it? Well, what makes them tick? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what makes them tick? And it's like I'm really interested in. Uh, it's not an easy arena for me, as I said, you know, feeling like I'm being gaslighted, if that's yeah. the way you say it, yeah. you know, is very painful for me. And it, it's, uh, as we say, triggering, um, you know, uh, but I also think that's a great feedback system, you know, that I, I do have an internal mechanism like this isn't right. Uh, I don't know what leads people. I mean, I, we can have, certainly I can have lots of delusions or all kinds of ideas, but I trust that there is some source that is closer to the reality and that I can check, you know, like if I have some some bizarre belief that's that's cooking or something that isn't quite right or something that's not known yet, you know, even just to to check that out. And so um uh and to have the absence of that means there's you know there's a lot going on if if nothing will have you say I was wrong? Yeah, you know I had a mistaken idea, but I am fascinated by that process. Like, is it that people do feel helpless or powerless, and then you have some kind of power? Like, I know something you don't know. <laughs> I know something they're trying to keep you from knowing, and you know whether it's pharma or you know the government or, um, you know like, but I know they can they can lie all day, but I know and. Uh, I think about what a forlorn state that is. Yeah. To provoke that, I don't, I don't have like family like that. You know, I don't think I have too many friends like that. But uh, certainly, I've had you know conversations with people. Um, I was at a friend's house, and a, a friend of his, who's a very important person for him in his life, was there, and and. You know, he turned out to be a nine eleven truther, which I don't think my friend knew even. And uh, you know, he said something to me like, mistakenly, um, it's not what he meant to say, but he said, uh, "You know, a plane didn't really hit the World Trade Center." And I said, "Surely, I saw them that on television seventy billion times." 
And what do you think happened to all those people who were supposed to be on the plane? Do you think they're on the South Sea Island somewhere? Right. And what he meant to say was that there was a, a third building that collapsed and it wasn't because of a plane, but, you know, was there a plane that hit the Pentagon? Well, I know people who were in the Pentagon. Uh, I know one guy who was the only person who survived yeah. from his division and he was knocked unconscious. And at one point later, you know, I said to him, do you think there was a plane? And he knew what I was talking about. And he said, and he said, I don't know. I was unconscious. Like, um, but it's like, what leaves, and the intensity of the presentation is just a fascinating mm. kind of thing, you know? And like, uh, maybe we're all just ultimately afraid and, and seizing on something. I think so. Afraid yeah. of dying, you know, afraid of being yeah. impermanent ourselves. I, th I think that that's exactly where I was going, um, Sharon, because, you know, when I, when you're talking about that, I'm, I'm thinking back, not just merely on the phenomenology of belief um, in, in how it's tied into reification yet again. I, I mean, to me, in so many ways, that's obviously in Buddhism, there is no original sin, right? But if there was, I, I would say ignorance, paren, reification is it. And I think that's the default mechanism of, of egoic structure is to, is to have this um, sense of certitude that obviously, if it's harnessed properly, is, is tremendously powerful, certainty and truth. But I think that, that certitude, when it's co-opted by kind of egoic mechanisms, then leads to these incredibly damaging um, blind spots. Uh, and, and, and so therefore, when you were talking about that, what I flipped on is, you know, we see in others what we're blind to in ourselves. And so this ties into another topic I wanted to talk to you about, um, which is, in fact, blind spots. Mm -hmm. I mean, how, uh, by definition, they're incredibly difficult to unearth. And, and these people that are just hardcore believers in these just wild conspiracy theories, um, you know, they're, they're, they're buying into a level of certitude and conviction that is, is so completely blind that it's damaging themselves and others. So maybe we can use this as a bit of a platform um, to a discussion about blind spots altogether. You know, how, how can we access those within ourselves? How can we somewhat uh, connected to the earlier question I posed to you? How can we help others, um, if in fact we can, uh, come to you know, the discovery, the realization of their own um, entrapments and blind spots? Well, I mean, I think for ourselves, there are a couple of um, levels to that. One is uh, being able to admit we're wrong or that we don't know, that we've made a mistake, which means revealing our vulnerability and not considering that a weakness. You know, considering yeah, when, that a did, did we hear, have we heard that once in the last four years from the right Yeah, now, right. right? Sorry, I had to interrupt. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's very true. And, um, think about this time uh, many years ago when the Dalai Lama was speaking in Arizona and he was teaching on uh, Shanti Deva's um, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life and the chapter on patience. And he was teaching in the morning and the afternoon and they decided, the organizers decided they wanted different uh, Western teachers to teach in the evening. So I was up first. Cool. And... Uh, it was, you know, I think about 4,000 people, which was the largest crowd I'd spoken to up until that point. And fortunately, the Dalai Lama was not there, but his, like, throne was behind me, you know. And then, yeah, right. and, and then it, was, 
it was very intimidating and it was over. And then I was so glad it was the first night because then I could just enjoy the teaching. And so, you know, the way he was teaching was he was using a text and he'd read from it, give a commentary. And as it was being translated, he would move on to the next passage he wanted to address. But maybe on like the third day, uh, something caught his attention in the translation. And he said to the translator, that's not what I said. And, and the translator said, yes, it was. And he said, no, it wasn't. And they said, he said, yes, it was. There was this wasn't Tupta Jimpa, was it? Yeah, it was Tupta Jimpa. Oh, my God. He's and like the best translator in the world. He is. Yeah. He's great. And so they were, and it was a very minor point, but, you know, uh, they were going back and forth and back and <laughs> forth. And so finally, the Dalai Lama flipped back to the passage that they were talking about. And he burst out into this really big laughter. And he said, oh, ha, 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 I made a mistake. <laughs> And I thought, look at that. If I'd made a mistake in front of those same 4,000 people like three nights before, would I have disclosed it and would I be laughing about it? I don't think so, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, so there's just something about that that would be such a relief. And, and that uh, also might mean when we are lucky, you know, being able to create a culture of that kind of truthfulness with our family, with our friends, in a workplace, um, you know, uh, it would make a big difference if vulnerability was not mm. seen as mm. a fall. Uh, yeah, as weak. Yeah, I mean, it's really it's a strength, isn't it? I mean, it, when it's when it's harnessed properly, it it basically allows us to be simply human. And, and I, I can't remember where I heard this, Sharon. Maybe maybe you you can tell me where where this comes from. But you know, before before we can be Buddha, we have to be fully human, right? In fact, yeah. I would say being fully human is being Buddha. And, and that, that means accepting all our, our faculties and our foibles, our vulnerabilities, our warps, our, our warts, and, and, and the like. And, and again, this is where metta comes back into play. Mm -hmm. The ability to look at ourselves square in the mirror. You know, I'm, I'm getting older, and I'm looking at my body, and it's doing things it's never done before. And I have to say, I, I chuckle at it, and I go, oh, my gosh, I've never seen creepy skin before. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> it's like, oh, how cool is that? You know, and, and so um, I, it comes back to me to these, this is what I so love about your work um, and my dear friend Pema Children, you know, just the, the almost remedial level. Um, and I mean that in, in the highest complimentary way, that, that if these so-called foundational practices are done the way they should be done, even though that's a tricky word, um, they have tremendous transformative potential. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. to me, they're, they're always, I find that they're, that they're in, you know, they just bring me more into my humanity. Um, they connect me to the human condition altogether, you know, as a, as a member of the family of the, of the human condition. And, and therefore, um, you know, like the Kamapa, I heard a very similar story once about the Kamapa. 17th Karmapa, where he did a very similar thing. And just like those V8 commercials in public, you know, he kind of whapped his head on his forehead and said, oh, another big mistake from his side. Mm -hmm. And this is coming from, you know, allegedly, not allegedly, enlightened, realized beings. And, and I think part of that realization that before we can be fully Buddha, we have to be fully human. Um, and therefore, the 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 earthiness of what you work, teach, and write about, um, I, I just think it's so indispensable in this age when we get so lost in things like spiritual bypassing and all mm -hmm. the other things we've been mm -hmm. talking about. So, I mean, do you see more and more of that yourself, Sharon, as, 
is you're in the in the um, business, so to speak, and on tour. Um, it's another topic I wanted to talk about, deeply connected to what we are already riffing on, is is the place of spiritual materialism, spiritual bypassing. How do you assess that um, in your experience? Well, I think about um, some of that I actually put in that book. Um, this woman, Samantha, I put in True Real Change, who is, um, I've been doing a, a degree of work in the um, gun violence community, people who've survived gun violence. And uh, it started when a friend uh, introduced me to the community in Parkland, where there'd been school oh, yeah. shooting at Marjorie Stumman Douglas High School. And uh, I went down there and, and taught a few years ago, and um, this woman, Samantha, was one of the people in, in the audience, and her mother is a teacher at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and was not hurt or killed that day, but was there. And so it was, like, uh, very traumatizing, and, and it's traumatizing for the whole community. And um, somewhere in the course of the day, Samantha raised her hand, and she said, I feel really weird because... I'm having this like incredibly wonderful day and learning all these things and, you know, being all together in this way. And, and she said, but I know the only reason it's happening is because that horrible thing happened. Mm. And I don't know how to get over that in order to appreciate this. And I said, you know, I don't think we ever really get over it, but I think we learn to hold them both at once. Yeah. And I said in, in Buddhist psychology, we'd call that equanimity. Uh, where our our minds, our hearts are big enough to hold both truths. Yeah. And and I said we talked about the yin yang symbol. Um, you know, where there's the dark in the light part, and there's the light in the dark part. And uh, so I, I put it in the book. And then when the book was coming out, I did like a series of things um, to help announce it, uh, which are all on YouTube. At, um, Wisdom 2.0's channel and um, I did a panel for Parkland people some people who'd lost a child people who'd uh, you know survived in other ways and Samantha was on the panel and I said hey Samantha do you remember that conversation we had about two years ago and she said not only do I remember it I think of it every single day in my life oh, wow. and uh, she, she brought up the yin yang symbol and equanimity and um, that's what I, I think we need both. It's like if we only open to the suffering and not the sense of possibility or or whatever, then we're stuck. It's so yeah. painful. We drown. And yeah. on the other hand, if we only insist on opening to the light and we cannot take in the suffering, that's the spiritual bypass. We're just floating, you know? Like, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I see it more and more in, in my own kind of teaching world, you know, in fact, I'm curious if you've had a similar type of experience where I've returned to several teaching locations at this point, almost decades, decades apart now. And, and, um, wonderful same people that came to me 20 years ago, Sharon, they come to me with exactly the same issue, mm. um, same problem. And, and I, I try to engage them and, and I, I'm curious, I say, I'm curious how you're working with it and, you know, somewhat generalized response, but more often, it's like, well, I, I, I talk to my, my guru or my meditation instructor, and they tell me to meditate harder. They tell me, you know, to basically lean in. And I, 
I sometimes wonder if that's entirely the wrong type of approach that that is, you know, as powerful as, as mindfulness is, meditation, these extraordinary weapons of wisdom, skillful means that we're talking about, I think theoretically um, they can handle everything. Um, but in my experience, practically, they don't seem to do that. So, mm -hmm. you know, how do you, I guess we could throw this a little bit wider into how do you work with so-called psychology um, on what I now look at as the psycho-spiritual spectrum of development altogether? Do you, do you endorse, do you recommend people look outside of the spectrum of, of classical meditative skillful means to deal with their issues? I'm, I'm really interested how you work with that. Um, you know, I think things are so different now from uh, early in my 50 years of practice, you know, uh -huh. um, in that uh, there was a, uh, often for people um, – we were all in Asia for one thing and formed a very intentional community with one another. And there was often a, a very close and distinct and personal relationship with the teacher, which meant that some of the things that were really hard, that are really hard, seeing your own assumptions, for example, which is something I thought of earlier in, in what we were saying, you know, like it's very hard to see that, that, seemingly fleeting thought that's actually governing your entire reaction to something mm -hmm. um, and the assumptions you're making about someone else based on whatever. Uh, and often a teacher plays that very role, you know, and um, not always in, in a way that, that feels all that nice, but it's really useful. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, I've had teachers, um, I mean, there's so many examples, but, um, you know, uh, one teacher when I was in India, a man named Manindra, would say to me something like, why are, you, why are you so upset about that thought that came up in your mind? Did you invite it? Did you say, like, at 3.15, I'd like to be filled with self-hatred, please? Well, no, <laughs> but when conditions come together for something to arise, it will arise. Why do you blame yourself so much? Yeah. And I can trace that the depth of that pattern by saying, well, Meninja said that to me in 1971 and, uh, you know, Goenka said that to me in a variation of that in 1974. And then Upandita said that to me, you know, and it's like, it obviously is a thing I have, you know, because they would bring it up. And it was something that I, I wasn't seeing on my own. Could I see it on my own? I do believe I could, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it's hard. And, uh, it may take time. It may take too much time for the amount of suffering that one is going through, you know, when you're just driven by these patterns that you don't even see. Um, and so, uh, obviously, for so many people, not everybody, but for many people, there's kind of absence of that. Yeah. You know, we're learning from a, a nap, you know, or, or a class that has you know, 5,000 people in it on Zoom or, you know, it's different. And so um, I, I just make note of that, that yeah. there's always been a component uh, in practice um, where it's not just extracting a technique. Yeah. You know, it's happening in the context of a community. It's happening in the context of exploring the nature of life, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, study and uh, of community and teachers <laughs> 
Um, and it's different now. And so uh, it's not that that system was perfect either and that there wouldn't be kind of psychological right. misses. There were uh, sometimes quite a lot, but uh, there, there was more in the nature of a personal confrontation, you know, mm-hmm. in a supportive way mm-hmm. than a lot of people have now. Yeah, and this and this begs uh, goes directly into the question I absolutely have to um, pose to you because you are so uniquely situated to address it. Is in fact the the um, the cultural translation of yeah. mindfulness. You know, I mean, what what do you see? This is a, a really big topic, but again, you are so uniquely qualified to address this, Sharon. What do you see both as the promise and the peril of the mindfulness revolution? Um, which, which is obvious. Well, I'll, I'll let you start with it, but it has such extraordinary potential. So many benefits. So many studies coming out revealing these benefits, uh, of which you know much more than I. So, promise and peril, state of the union of mm-hmm. of mindfulness, and and uh, um, and then maybe even a little bit later Buddhism on the West, mm-hmm. but more specifically mindfulness, because. Uh, Maybe it can be extricated from this culture and milieu. I'm not so sure about that, especially um, in light of what you just said. But let's talk about the promise and peril. Well, first of all, I find it astonishing. You know, like I went to India in 1970. I came back in 74 as a teacher because my own teacher had told me to teach. Um, We began the Insight Meditation Society here in Barrie in 1976. and, of course, in those days, as you know, like, you'd be a party or some social situation and somebody would say, what do you do? And I'd say, I teach meditation. And they would kind of go, oh, that's weird. <laughs> you know, like, it was so different. Um, and to see kind of the explosion of interest, um, I think largely, you know, because of the research and the science, which is the language of our time, and the pioneering work of people like John Kabat-Zinn, mm-hmm. Um, to really translate uh, many methods and so on into scientific language and to insist on research, which really uh, gave a kind of validation in the eyes of many. Um, so I think it's incredibly exciting and weird, you know, and uh, it's not that mindfulness is, uh, or meditation is a panacea, but uh, how amazing to have a tool. Like I've thought of that so much during the, pandemic like um thank goodness i have some tools you know isn't it isn't it like being alone not being able to be distracted in the same way it's all gone you know like uh my expectations you know like i haven't seen my apartment in a long time in new york city even though i'm paying rent and uh you know how do you hold up what is holding you up what are you counting on and i i treasure those tools like and I'm so happy that they're more available for people. Um, there are several perils that I think of um, and talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, one is, I think the, um, I mean, the word mindfulness, as you know, is a very complex word in that it could have many definitions. And um, I think uh, here are two perils in one, actually. <laughs> A lot of the ways that it can be, it is defined in popular um, expressions of mindfulness are accurate, but they're also potentially troubling. Like, 
uh, we use the word acceptance before, which is a difficult word for people. What does that actually mean? Yeah. Does it mean you just lie back, you know? And like I'm accepting things the way that they are. I'm being mindful. That is true. Or I'm being with my experience without judging. That's also true. But people ask these questions, like if you're meditating, listening to sound, they say, if I hear the smoke alarm, should I sit here mindfully knowing the smoke alarm is going off or should I get up? And I'd say, you get up, you know, like, so mindfulness can seem really passive and complacent and uh, it's really not that. So that's one problem. The other side of that is that in the popularization of mindfulness, um, the benefit that is talked about, I think, more than anything is a sense of inhabiting your life more fully, like mm-hmm. really enjoying the cup of tea you're drinking because you're actually not multitasking. You're tasting it. You're feeling the warmth of the teacup. You're smelling the tea. You're tasting the tea. It's a much more fulfilling cup of tea. And I think that needs to be respected. You know, that's a big difference in the quality of life yeah. for a lot of people. And yet, Classically, the main, main benefit of mindfulness is insight. It's not just inhabiting your life. It's understanding your life, like what causes suffering? What causes that greater joy? Who am I, you know? Am I as alone and disconnected as I feel? Uh, What about interconnection? You know, so it's really about insight and understanding. And that is often lost, uh, which I think is a big loss. And then my other great... um, Concern, although it's so totally out of my hands that uh, it's not something I really, you know, belabor, is that um, everything gets kind of reductionistic. It's like Mm -hmm. there was a study, apparently, um, that I read about that said that, in fact, mindfulness does not affect implicit bias, which made no sense to me because it clearly can. You know, you see your assumptions. You see the way you're dismissing somebody because of their skin color or whatever. And you see so much that what was implicit becomes clear, then you can let go of it. And it just made no sense. I mean, I knew many studies have been done that said the opposite. Yeah. Uh, And then David DeSteno, um, who's a – researcher at Northeastern wrote an article somewhere about that study that said mindfulness would not reduce implicit bias. And he pointed out that the entire length of the mindfulness experience of the people in the study was five minutes. Yeah. I mean, give me a break. You know, so you think about that, like, what do we think it is, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, our, our mutual friend, Richie Davidson and Dan Goldman, of course, their beautiful yeah. book, Altered Traits, such a badly needed book about, you know, even though there's six, seven, seven thousand studies right now, I mean, the vast majority of them, I mean, Richie estimates what, like some out of that, maybe some 60 or 70 are actually solid studies. And they, they, were, they, they, they share that mm-hmm. one story, remember, Sharon, where they somehow, they were, one study showed a connection to increased mindfulness and binge drinking, right? I mean, hello. Uh-huh. Like, where's the rigor in that? But, yeah, yeah. So how do you feel about, um, maybe you're heading that way, I don't mean to cut you off, but the, but like the commodification, the mindfulness um, problem. I mean, do you, do you see that as a, as a very, really legitimate kind of challenge in the transplantation of mindfulness in the West? 
I'm not, I mean, it's a great phrase, you know, it's a great term, but right. I'm not really concerned about that in the sense of um, the other part of what one could talk about in the reductionistic is, um, you know, I became a teacher because my teacher told me to become a teacher. It wasn't like a three-week training course. Right. Or a six-week training course, or I've talked to people um, who've said, and I believe they're extremely well-motivated people, you know, they're not like greedy or anything. Uh, they really want to help. Um, and that's the dilemma, you know, is that there's so much need. But what happens if somebody has barely any experience themselves when they're teaching? And uh, I think it's just different. Not that we can't, not that any of us is perfect or we can't learn a lot from an imperfect vehicle because I think we can. But it's something different. So I was talking to somebody once who was uh, maybe invited to do a large uh, train the trainers program because a lot of what happens in, say, corporations is that, uh, or organizations is that they want an internal person to take over the program because they don't want to pay somebody sure. to come in and do it. And so then you've got like some HR person who, you know, uh, wants to be trained to be a teacher. But th this particular person was talking about um, the military and bringing mindfulness into the military. And and she said, um, I may have an opportunity to uh, have a train the trainers program because the military want to explore the skill, but they don't want outside people always coming in to teach it. And And I said, oh, that's interesting. How long is the training period and she said eight hours oh my god and i said you're joking right you know like right. Uh, and she said it's the only way to scale it up and i said well maybe that's not the goal yeah. in the end you know and and truly it was out of compassion it was not you know she said to me do you know how many soldiers are committing suicide and yeah. um but nonetheless what does it mean that uh somebody may be teaching who has been through very little yeah. And a lot of them are doing great work. I should say that too. They're working in places I'm not working, like prisons, mm -hmm. you know, and and doing incredible work. Um, but I, I hesitate with that feeling. One is done. Yeah. Like I've done my training. I don't need to keep learning or uh, being isolated around that. And and I think it's it's that's more of a danger than yeah. mindfulness going into corporations because. What I found going into corporations, by and large, is that people are people. You know, nobody working anywhere has said to me, "I would like to help you. I'd like to have you help me be more soulless, so I can produce more." You know, everybody says, <laughs> "I'm worried about my brother who's an alcoholic, or I haven't slept myself in in so long, or or whatever." And uh, people are people, and and I just don't get it. You know that that there's that sense of rejection because of um, capitalism or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there are a lot of perils because uh, it's a different culture in so many ways. And the emphasis on, say, that HR person getting trained to be a meditation teacher in two and a half hours, you know, things like that, that, that needs to be resisted. And Sharon, do you think this is a really um, kind of a delicate 
almost political question. Do you, do you think it, it, it is um, part of the role or the place of elders like, like yourself and others, you know, um, people who really have done the training, have done the work, have been around the block, I mean, for decades, to, to create metrics, to create, um, you know, requirements or standards? Or do you think mm -hmm. this all kind of sorts itself out in the end? Because, you know, that which has the power to cure has the power to curse. I mean, mm -hmm. these, these things are not, I think it's very tricky to say that they're, they're neutral. I, I, I don't think they are neutral. And I, mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, you can become a more, Again, it's not mindfulness in the technical sense, but you know, uh, I think you'll understand it when I when I say this. I mean, the extreme example. There's quite a bit of a difference between the mindfulness of a surgeon and the mindfulness of a sniper. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're using the same word in completely different settings. But that aside, it, it, is it too presumptuous, too obtrusive for for the elders um, in a, a kind of a cross traditional way? to band together to at least create some kind of um, declaration or, I mean, manifestos to an extreme where I think you understand where I'm coming from. I yeah. That sort of thing. Is that usurping the spirit of this altogether or is it, is it a little bit uh, almost even necessary and indicated? Well, I mean, there's, you know, different aspects. Let's go to the mindful sniper, you know, uh, comment for a moment, you know, like uh, I think that, the people who were first bringing like mindfulness to military people, um, they started with veterans, and it was it was really the idea that you know maybe maybe this could have a kind of healing role in in uh, trauma, and we have a military you know, and I mean we're counting on them now to keep us safe from homicidal right. people you know roaming the streets and. Um, we have a military and people, you know, I, I know people who served in Afghanistan and Iraq who who got into meditation afterwards, people who served in Vietnam who became Buddhist monks. And, you know, it is a lot of trauma. And we send these young people over to different places and um, it's very, very hard. And I think everyone had a kind of sympathy for that. Like, why would you withhold something from somebody which might have a beneficial effect. And then somebody had the thought, maybe mindfulness and that kind of, those kind of practices could be a kind of preventative mm. of the most excessive sort of trauma reactions. And so then it began to be introduced in basic training. And I don't know anyone, I mean, because I don't know the military uh, by and large, you know, like who was thinking about a more mindful sniper, like what the research findings were. Yeah. We're really around things like executive function, you know, decision making, clarity, not being so prone to massacres, for example, you know, because you see something out of the corner of your eye, things like that, which we can all appreciate. But I, and I know it kind of got a bad name and it's complicated, you know, it's extremely complicated as, as an issue. But that would be an example. Like, I don't feel like I'm in a position to say where someone should teach or you know, what's appropriate and what's not. You know, those people had conversations with the Dalai Lama and that was fine. You know, that was a good, I mean, he, he if this is even the right term, he seemed to wrestle with it also, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, if someone's looking for a kind of moral voice, which would be a good thing always, I think, to do, then he would be a better choice than, than me. Um, 
and there are people who are trying to have a sense of almost like a professional association yeah. with some standards and qualifications, you know, coming out of UCLA particularly. Um, I, I don't know. Like, it just feels like there's so many people already. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, signing books somewhere years ago and the first person who came up to get a book signed said, um, I'm a mindfulness coach. And I thought, I don't know what that means. <laughs> you know, and the second person said, I'm thinking of a second career in mindfulness. Yeah, and I thought, I don't know what that means either. Yeah, yeah, I don't either. <laughs> you know? right. Yeah. It, it is a bit of a wild West, isn't it out there? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, again, it's a, it's a little bit of a blessing and a curse. And I have to reflect back on what got me interested in spirituality, Sharon, and this, this will date me was the old David Carradine Kung Fu series. Uh-huh. I, I watched that thing as a, as a teenager, and there was something that really reached me with this kind of ass-kicking contemplative, right? You know, um, there was some little spark that was seeded by this thing that really, looking back, was, is kind of comical. But it wasn't comical for me at the time because it really was an upaya. It, it met me where I was at that moment, and it magnetized me into looking deeper into what, the, the facade of, of, of mm-hmm. David Carradine's, you know, contemplative um, demeanor actually was was referring to. Uh, and so, again, this, this is very much a, a, an open question for me, but I think the more it's at least addressed within the so-called elders of the community, and even mm-hmm. that becomes somewhat problematic and potentially hierarchical, at least then there's some more overt awareness of, of the abuses misuses of this kind of approach mm-hmm, uh, so mm-hmm. that, you know then at least there's some almost record of it so to speak but because it is a little bit of the wild west yeah i mean w- what to do right what to do you know it's like i don't know <laughs> yeah yeah it's a one level it's a nice place to start to wrap this up um oh my i i could talk to you for the rest of the day sharon you are you are such a resource it's an, a, a tremendous blessing and honor to spend this time with you um and before we really kind of zip this up, I, I want um, somewhat connected to the question I just asked you, the state of the union of Buddhism and the West altogether. So, so now it's not just mindfulness. When you look, again, with your, with your stature at what you see with the transplantation of the Buddhist wisdom in the West, um, what can you share ever so briefly along, along those lines? Is it happening successfully? Or are you concerned equally along those lines as you are with what's happening in the meditation movement? Or do you, do you see them, in fact, as inextricably connected? Um, I, I have a kind of conditioning also, you know, from my own experience and from kind of the preponderance of the teachers in, in my uh, tradition. And, and um, there's certain aspects of, of the Buddhist perspective, like, ethics or compassion or so on that seem really need to be interwoven with with the practice but their emphasis was not on Buddhism like that the same teacher Meninja once said to me um, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem now you solve yours mm-hmm. and which was a very encouraging statement because I thought he can, he thinks I can do that. Uh, you know, my first teacher was S.N. Goenka, who um, the first night he taught in the context of 10-day retreats, and the first night of my first retreat, January 7th, 1971, 
uh, Goenka said, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught a way of life. Mm. And this is open to anybody, you know, of any faith or no faith. Um, and when Jack Cornfield was coming back in uh, probably also 1973 or 1974 from Thailand, uh, where he had done practice with a Thai forest monk, Ajahn Chah, yeah. he said to Ajahn Chah, you know, I feel kind of uneasy about teaching meditation in the West because people are not uh, often raised as Buddhists and uh, it might seem really alien. And Ajahn Chah said to him, call it Christianity. I said, oh, what a fantastic statement. You know, so it was like, that's really my background. And so God. I'm much less concerned with people having a sense of the cosmology or yeah. a belief in rebirth than I am with them actually practicing. <laughs> But a practice also means life practice, you know, so it's looking at how you speak and looking at how you live and, and so yeah. on. Yeah. Oh, I, I never heard that. What a yeah. beautiful comment. Oh, yeah. So spot on. So I'm going to ask you one impossible question. Um, it, this one's a little bit canned. And the only reason I, I ask it, Sharon, is because in the rare instances when I'm with people that I feel, you know, their their answers are, are um, I'm not so worthy is the right um comment that's able to respond to this. I, I never forget the answers of the people mm -hmm. I asked this question. And this is the following hypothetical. If if you know with your vast experience, the extraordinary array of teachers, teachings, practices that you've done, if you realized right now that you only had a minute left to live, mm -hmm. what would be your irreducible instruction to us? <laughs> Uh, so it would be some form of, uh, love everybody, love yourself, something like that. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful. I want to pause for one second to, to kind of absorb the simplicity and the profundity of even that proclamation. Um, how can, um, well, I always close these sessions with, um, how can people learn about you? Um, what uh, outside of this really beautiful book that I'm so enjoying, Real Change, what, what are you currently working on? How can people support your work? Um, tell us a little bit about how they can connect with you and, and what you're actually currently engaged in before we um, close for today. Uh, probably the easiest way to find me is my website, which is SharonSalzberg.com, and there'll be all kinds of information on there about different things that I'm offering, there's a, a page, I think it's called the calendar page, which has my schedule. And uh, every February, for example, through the website uh, or through some connection to the website, we do a 28-day challenge. It was based on that book, Real Happiness, which the full title is Real Happiness, The Power of Meditation, a 28-day program. And it's a wonderful experience. People just commit to sitting like five minutes a day uh, at a minimum, and and there's a beautiful sense of community that grows out of that. And uh, I'm also teaching. I'm conceptualizing another book. Nice. Uh, and yeah, there's a lot going on because I'm not always traveling. Yeah, that's one. That's really one benefit, isn't it? Of the yeah. last yeah. Nine months is how much you can actually accomplish. How many more people you can reach? Yeah. By doing this stuff online. So are, are you at liberty to tell us what's percolating um, for a next home, or is that still um, restricted territory? My next book, you mean? Yeah, yeah. 
It's probably a little early since okay. I don't have I don't have a contract. Okay, terrific. Well, thank you, Sharon, really so much. I know how busy you are. Um, it means the world to me. It means the world to our community. Our, our, our community is really growing, and um, what you have to share is is, is of such tremendous benefit. You're you're definitely leaving this world a better place. So, on behalf of all of us, very best wishes for this upcoming year and. Uh, a great deal of gratitude coming for everybody in our nightclub. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us. And a really big thanks to Sharon for taking time out of her extremely busy schedule to share her vast knowledge, kindness, and wisdom with us. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out all the other offerings on Nightclub. There's a lot happening these days. But until next time, pleasant dreams.